Hello, hello everyone. Hello, hello everyone. We're reading. It's Wednesday, so we're reading. Set the world on fire. Black nationalist women in the global struggle for freedom. Let's continue. Doo -doo -doo. And we're talking about Celia Jane Allen. And let's get into it. Sorry it wasn't I was so late out. Had to do this earlier. I'm on this weird sleep cycle where I'm up all night and I can't. I'm trying to wake up one morning and stay up all day so I can sleep at night like a regular human being, but it ain't working out. Um, Celia Jane Allen's early years. Similar to many working class black women living during the early 20th century, Celia Jane Allen left no personal archives and few writings. No, at least I have videos and writings. I think a lot of us do in this information age, so that's good. She was born in Mississippi. The specific location is unknown. And during the first wave of great Mig the Great Migration, relocated to Chicago, where she resided at 442 Bo Bowen Avenue. Many more Leonard Gordon and other PME leaders who worked alongside Allen referred to her as Mrs. Allen. Make sure my volume is up. There we go. Uh, they may have referred to her as Miss Allen out of respect and because of her age. The only surviving photo of Allen suggests that she might have been around 40 years old during the late 1930s. Uh, see figure eight. Oh, see, I'm going to show you the picture in a minute. Very little else about Alan's personal life is known. Sorry, people who listen to audio. But that's why you got to join my Patreon so you can see these photos. So. Although Alan disclosed few details about her personal life in her co correspondence and interactions with others, census records offer some clues. Curiously, no one by the surname Allen appears in census records for Chicago during this period, who also fits all the details Allen provided in her writings. Though multiple individuals with the same name resided in Chicago, they neither resided on Bowen Avenue nor had a birthplace listed as Mississippi. In, in 1940, when census takers arrived in 442 Bowen Avenue in Cook County, Chicago, they encountered a 35-year-old African-American woman by the name of Ruth Dorsey. Born in Mississippi in 1905, Dorsey had relocated to Chicago, sometimes during the mid to late 20s. She arrived in the city during the Great Migration, when thousands of other African-Americans abandoned life in the Jim Crow South. While residing in Chicago with her mother and her husband, Frank Ruth Dorsey, like countless other black women in urban areas, worked in domestic service. My mother was from Mississippi. Most of those people did go to Chicago. My mother came to New York and her family turned on her. Said if you were in New York, you're probably a drug addict. And then when she went back to get my sisters, she had short hair. 
And her whole family says she's a drug addict. She's from New York. She cut her hair. She's a drug addict. <laughs> that's, that's my family in Mississippi. Uh, back to the, the book. During the early 1930s, Dorsey lost her. Oh, and my mother did domestic work too. Raised one. She raised a, one group of white women and the woman actually hired her to raise her children. So in that family, she raised two generations. Um, Love those people. I'll just leave it there. Back to the reading. Uh, during the, the early 1930s, Dorsey lost her job as a domestic worker and remained unemployed until 1940. Her experience mirrored those of other black women residing in Chicago and other cities. By January 1931, more than a quarter of all black women residing in urban areas lost their jobs. Though Dorsey admitted receiving some type of income, most likely federal relief, in 1940, her financial situation was probably still dire. Federal, federal funds provided minimal relief for African Americans who received less than their fair share. It's always the way. This is, by the way, why universal programs, all these socialist class people, this is why it's not. it doesn't work in America. You have to deal with race in this country. It's, it's, it's written into and, and, and just, it's in everything, deep in the foundations of everything. Um, the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, FERA, which spent $4 billion primarily in direct financial aid for the needy, extended more funds to white Americans than black Americans. New Deal policies, which promised to improve socioeconomic conditions for all Americans, ultimately offered the African Americans a raw deal. For black women, the extremely limited job opportunities during the economic crisis and rampant racial inequalities and federal relief programs created a dismal atmosphere. Some black women in urban North in the urban North participated in slave markets, accepting extremely low pay for domestic work. It's my mother. Although Celia, Jane Allen's living arrangement are unclear, her ability to use Dorsey's address for the purpose of receiving mail during the 1930s and 1940s suggests that the two women may have been related and intimately involved or otherwise well acquainted. It is also likely that Allen was a boarder or lodger. In Dorsey's apartment, even though Allen was not present when census takers arrived at the home in 1940, while the full circumstances surrounding Allen's early life in Chicago remain a mystery, surviving records reveal that she became a member of the PME sometime in 1933. During the economic and political upheavals of the Depression, Gordon's PME provided a significant platform for working-class blacks in the city and other parts of the country to engage in nationalist politics. With the local chapters of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, UNIA, in a state of decline, the PME emerged as the largest black nationalist organization in Chicago. 
like many of the black women and black men and women who joined the PME, Allen was especially drawn to the organization because its immigrationist platform and commitment to economic self-sufficiency and racial separatism. Allen insisted, I want to do all that I can in the fight in helping to in helping to provide ways and means for the Negroes to be immigrated to Africa from whence they came, from whence we came. We can only plead to the gods of this country to send us to Africa, she continued, where we can work and make a living and be a pure black race. Alice's comments capture her commitment to racial separatism, her pan-African vision, and her sustained belief that immigration was a vehicle for realizing black unity and um, bolstering black political and economic self-determination. For Allen and the thousands of men and women who joined the PME, immigration to West Africa appeared to be a logical response to the racial hatred that permeated much of the nation and the first step toward building better livelihoods during a global economic crisis. We were so, we're so integrated into this country. Although you might have a faction of the ruling class that would want us to leave, I doubt that the majority of them would ever, well, maybe now they would because of technology and robotics and AI, but in the 1930s and 40s, they would never let a majority of us leave, but they might've let her and her group leave. I don't know. By 1937, Allah became one of PME's key recruiters in the U.S. South. Gordon and other members of the PME's executive council identify Allen as the ideal candidate to facilitate this process, perhaps because Allen was familiar with the area or had volunteered to go. The transient nature of Allen's life suggests that the activist enjoyed a mobility that made it possible for her to be an effective organizer. As a national organizer, Allen was expected to be away from home for extended periods of time, and she was also expected to travel frequently through the Jim Crow South. If Allen was married, or at the very least had familial ties to Chicago, the decision would have been a difficult one to make. Moreover, as an organizer, she received little financial support from the PME. By one account, the organization provided $5 to cover traveling expenses, but Allen ultimately bore the brunt of the financial costs. The personal sacrifices and financial commitment associated with Allen's political organizing activities might have been deterrence. Even more, the decision to return to Mississippi must have caused Allen some anxiety. Allen's few surviving letters capture her sense of fear as she traveled throughout the South to recruit new members and promote the message of black immigration. Naturally, she worried that her life would be in danger and with limited financial resources, she had no clear sense of how her basic necessities would be met. Her unexpected arrival at Reverend Green's home in Mississippi underscores the uncertainty associated with her political activities during this period. Notwithstanding her fears and anxiety, Allen remained committed to the task of promoting black immigration in rural black communities in the Jim Crow 
south. And we'll come back and the next section says building a movement in Mississippi. You could build movements in this country back then. I think Amer Americans, for the most part, the typical American back in the 1940s and 50s was more interested in social and political work. I mean, even the worst ones, even like the racists and things like that, they still were interested in social and political work. Um, I know black people were more interested in social and political work until 1980s. Around the 1990s, we just lost all interest. It just didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter. And I'm not sure. I guess so many things had happened. They had taken so many of our men away. Crack had devastated people. Um, and I know people like to say crack babies weren't a thing. They were a thing. I was in the projects. I remember they were a thing. And they it was awful to see them in, in, in hospitals. Crying. Um, and trembling and things like that. Um, and those babies grew up. And there is something missing there. I mean, I don't care what you say. Um, trust left the black community during the crack era. Cohesion. I guess fatigue set in and then we've never been the same since. Just never have. And we just lost interest in any political and social work. And that's why things won't change for us. But the longer we sit without doing that, the less likely it's going to be that we will survive. You must be cohesive today. With all the tools you have, you still have to be, you, your clan has to be strong. Your group has to be strong. Especially now as the federal government just seems to be insane. <clears throat> not that the rest of the country is not, but just completely in a bubble um, and we need reality well reality is 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 doing this thing but we need to start um, pushing again ordinary people need to start caring again and care what ethnic group you're in social work and political work is the only thing that's going to keep the human species going and if we don't do that and keep thinking we can have all these great whatever individual life we want and do whatever we feel like doing, then it's over. But we'll see. Maybe maybe there's a chance. People seem to be pushing for concepts like justice. People seem to be, you know, at least when it when it comes to protests and when it comes to certain behaviors, there's been no structural change yet other than the structural changes that the ruling class is making. Um, but the people on the ground seem to just be waiting for the ruling class to make those changes. Nobody's offering. Well, I shouldn't say nobody's offering, but the typical person is not offering or embracing alternatives that are offered let's put it that way and that's a problem that needs to change and you know like i said hopefully it will 
I'll see you next time for the next reading. And um, you know how to support. Hit the links. Give directly. Um, become a sponsor. And until next time, please take care and be safe.